intrigued by the by the the renaissance man kind of thing um but you are the you seem to be like the the living embodiment of that of that concept can you give us a little bit of a little bit of a background and a little bit of a uh, a bio of yourself yeah so um so background uh, uh my my dad was a doctor um and so like many uh children of doctors my you know the expectation was that i would go and do medicine so of course I dropped out of school um, early and went and did an, an apprenticeship because um, I was lazy basically. Um, and so you know I'm an electrician by trade. Um, did that, did that for a few years. Kind of wasn't really into that. Um, so hopped off on my OE as as we all do as Kiwis and um, rode my bike across Europe and um, hang out in a bunch of different places. And then and then came back and got involved with a couple of guys. Um, and so we did the, the cactus thing. So cactus is a uh, manufacturer of uh, backpacks and uh, workwear, outdoor clothing. Um, has been going for 28 years. Um, New Zealand made, um, staunch kind of uh, advocate for New Zealand manufacturing. Um, and, and very much um, kind of a purpose-driven organisation, which everyone says, but... Um, you know, we're not about making money. We don't make a significant amount of money. Um, you know, and, and at the same time as we we started, Jeremy started Icebreaker, um, uh, Stuart in Australia started Crumpler, and those have both um, grown massively and um, and done really well. But um, we kind of believe there is a sort of a higher purpose, I guess, for what we do. Um, you know, part of that is um, is you know, making stuff in New Zealand and making stuff that lasts a really long time and not, not um, you know, not encouraging just rampant consumerism. Mm. And, and part of it is just a, a different perspective on business. Um, you know, we were never out to, to become millionaires or or to, to kind of follow this whole, you know, grow fast, sell off, you know, to offshore um, model um, and, you know, witness the fact that 28 years later, we're still here and um, still doing what we do. So, um, yeah, so that's that's kind of cactus. And, and then I, um, I, I had the luxury that you know I, I was sort of working in the business, but had some free time. So I did some study and then started doing some, some, some writing, some blogging. Um, got involved in the technology space and kind of um, there was a whole wave around sort of fifteen years ago around cloud computing and sort of I rode that wave and. Um, did a lot of you know consulting and stuff um, in the US, and um, you know got invited to lots of conferences, and used to you know until sort of a year or two ago was sort of in the US, um, sort of a third of the year and flying all around the place, um, and and long, off the back of that, did, started doing a lot of sort of angel investing. So I'm involved in um, thirty or forty different startups, um, some of which are still going, some have been really successful and have exited, some have failed. Um, and then of of late, I've kind of um, wanted to come back and do some stuff here in New Zealand and for New Zealand. And so um, uh, I'm now a professional director, so I'm on a bunch of uh, a bunch of commercial boards, but also um, some non-profit boards um, involved in some social enterprise stuff. Um, yeah, and and in that time uh, along the way, I. Um, 
uh, you know, built my built my own house, um, uh, became a volunteer firefighter. I've been a firefighter for twenty something years, and was a paramedic for a while. Um, just kind of a bunch of different stuff, and I think that that's kind of my. Um, if there's any take outtake from from kind of my my life, it's, it's absolutely not that people should do what I've done, but it's that um, the the great thing about this modern age in in living in a in a country like New Zealand where we are very very privileged is that you can uh, it, well, it's a lot easier to do to do different things and to, to, to take to take a chance and and try some different things and so um, I guess I've done that and I've, I've yeah, it's it's gone pretty well for me, I guess. As you're talking, my life so far has has been flashing through my eyes, and I've been I've been wondering what the hell have I been doing with all my time? Are you sure there's not like three or four of you? Because you are you are prolific. I mean, you make it sound very casual, but you you have a very big body of of work in terms of the the you know the tech commentary space. Let alone investing in thirty to forty startups, and and let alone you know running running a, a local manufacturer. How 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 do you break down your day? Yeah, so so I'm lucky. I, I don't have a full time job, and so um, if you think about. Um, you know, if, if you think about sort of a, a normal person who has a normal job that probably takes up, well, no one has a 40-hour job, it's probably 60 hours, so so I don't have that, so that gives me a, a heap of time. Um, the other thing I'd say is is that, um, so, so that's kind of an, an external thing that gives me, you know, gives me an opportunity. But we also made some decisions, so um, when we first came to Christchurch, we, we lived in the factory, we didn't pay ourselves anything. Um, we saw that as an investment in, in the future. Um, you know, my house, you know, like it's awesome that I built my house, but the only reason we've got quite a nice house is because I took a year where I, where I you know, worked three days a week and built four days a week. And so, um, you know, we've, we've made decisions. Like we have shitty old cars. We've never had, you know, we've never done a whole consumer thing. We don't have flash TVs or stereos or, or whatever. So... I think um, we, we've made some sort of decisions around our consumption that have enabled us to do some other things. So, so again, I think it's really important, like, you know, it would be really arrogant for me to say, oh, I'm great, I'm so good, I can do these things. It's not that at all. It's that we've made some decisions that have enabled us to do those things. And so, um, you know, I think we, we're in a very privileged position that we have the ability to make those choices, and, and a lot of New Zealanders don't have that. Um, but yeah, you know, some some do and choose not to. So, mm-hmm. and then there's a lot of like, it sort of comes down to risk. Like I, I've I've got a buddy, you know, a really good buddy who who I went to school with, and um, you know, like his thing is that I remember having a conversation with him. You know, he he spent years and years working offshore, and and he was always really keen to. to you know, build a beach house, buy some land, build a beach house here in New Zealand. I said, oh, why don't, you, why don't you just do it? Find a job in New Zealand, it'll pay less, but you can do it. And it's like, oh, yeah, but if I work to 65, I get my pension. And then, and then I can do it. I was like, dude, you could get run over by a bus tomorrow. And so so I guess, um, you know, another one, I, I don't consciously think about it, but I've always been driven by this whole idea that, you know, life is really short, so so don't, you know, you know seize what you can do today, don't put it off till tomorrow. And my dad died when I was quite young and so I guess subconsciously I've always had that as a driver it's like life is short so so seize the day mm. do you think uh, I grew up I grew up down the road from you by the way in Glenside down the road from Tower. Yeah. do you think I mean 
Tawa, Glenside. It's a very simple. It's a very simple affair. Do you think that? Do you think that kind of set the set the tone for you? I mean, it's really funny because I, um, you know, like I think about Tawa. I went to Tawa College, and I think about the people that went to school. And there's there's two classes: the people that um, escaped and in inverted commas, and, and those that didn't. And so, I mean, Tawa on the one hand was great. It was safe. It was clean. It was, you know, but it was so sheltered. You know, like it was. There was no alcohol until, you know, not so many years ago. It was the highest number of churches per capita, all that sort of stuff. And so um, I think that, you know, like I think that um, it's, it's really important that, you know, this, you know, today there's all this talk about sort of white privilege. And I think that um, Tawa is the epitome of white middle class, uh, you know, like I'm Jewish, but, but generally Christian um, privilege. And so... Um, I mean, I think, I, I often think about Tawa as, as a sort of, um, as a sort of cautionary tale for the life I, I, I lead now. Um, but I also, you know, like Tawa gave me a, a bunch of opportunities, so that's really important to recognise as well. Mm. Can you elaborate on cautionary tale? Well, I just think that... Um, so I, so my take, and I, and I, you know, like I grew up, Lynn of Tower was all the rage when I was a lad, and so um, I have this sort of negative view of Tower, and it seems like the really safe place that sort of bank managers and mid-level civil servants um, kind of aspired to back in the seventies and eighties, um, and you know, like I. Uh, you know, like, I'm, I'm just a regular dude, right? Like, you know, none of my achievements are actually going to make a difference. But within that, you know, like, I, I actually I actually want at some level to make a difference in the world. And um, in order to do so, one has to go out on a limb. And I think, to me, Tower is all about not going out on a limb and, and playing safe. And... Um, it's really easy. It's a really easy thing to do because it is safe and you buy your car and you mow your lawns on a Sunday and you go to church and, you know, your kids go to the same school you went to and just, you know, you wake up one morning, you're 75 and you die. Um, and it's, I, I couldn't cope with that because I want, like I want to be kind of working on important stuff. And, and within, you know, within the context of the fact that in 100 years, it really doesn't make a difference. But, you know, what seems important at the time, I guess. Do you, get the, do you get the sense that more and more we're becoming conscious of that? More and more we're starting to look at purpose. You know, it's one of those things that's bandied around a lot. But are, are, you, are you, I mean, you're an exception, but are you seeing, are you seeing that there are entrepreneurs coming up that, are, that aren't interested necessarily in making a whole lot of money, but they have other metrics for success? Yeah, the only thing I'd say, um, yes, but I do worry that um, we're using the word purpose um, quite loosely. So I always remember um, I'm on the board of the Akina Foundation, which is all about you know growing social enterprise in New Zealand. And I remember you know when I when I first got appointed to the board, I was at some some function. I just got talk, talking talking to someone. I was talking to them about social enterprise. Um, and this person said, "Oh yeah, you know I've got social social enterprise. Yeah, I'm all about purpose." I said, "Oh, that's awesome. You know, what do you do?" And their response was, "Oh, you know, yoga." And it's like. Um, you know, you can you can say, you know, you can say social enterprise, you can say purpose, or you can say, you know, doing well by doing good. Um, but how 
how much you're actually impacting. So, so I, you know, like I'm involved in, in that world, and so there can be good stuff that comes from it. But, but if you if if you know if someone was to ask me what is the most sort of impactful thing you do, I mean, obviously my kids you know, goes without saying. But, but actually, being a volunteer firefighter is is the most impactful thing that I do because that that actually makes a difference to people. Um, you know, very simply and very obviously. Uh, and a lot of time we kind of, um, yeah, we, we, we talk about purpose. And so, you know, I'm, I was reflecting on that the other day. I've got a friend who, who recently took on a, you know, high-level job at a, at a corporate. Uh, and, and they were sort of talking about the fact that sort of they thought that the corporate would sort of be, you know, nice and, and have a purpose and actually be really, you know, authentic about driving societal change or whatever and this organization talks about all of that stuff all the time but it's all it's, it's totally inauthentic because at the end of the day you know they're about quarterly earnings and you know making more money and so when push comes to shove they make people redundant but they still talk about all this purpose stuff and so um yeah i think a lot about sort of authenticity i guess mm. yeah how do we because we run the danger of them becoming really cynical about the concept of purpose and even authenticity as well. How do we, how do we keep that balance? So, I don't know. Like I'm, a, I'm, you know, I just think of it really simply. Like you know, I think about, you know, being a member of a fire brigade and however many hundred hours, you know, a year that that I spend doing that stuff. Um, you know, to me, you know, we can create all these metrics and dashboards and, and whatever, but, you know, like, if, if I can't, so, so my, you know, the, the wisest person I know is my brother, um, who is a, you know, craftsman builder that builds these amazing houses, uh, really, you know, incredibly smart, but, um, but uh, quite, uh, you know, plain in the way he articulates stuff. And so, so here's my litmus test. Um, you know, if my brother can see that something is actually making a difference, then it genuinely is. Um, and if my brother calls bullshit on it, then generally it is bullshit. So, yeah. So if you if you take that back, you, you know, you're talking about cactus, and you also mentioned like the likes of icebreaker. Do you do you wake up sometimes in the middle of the night? Is there is there some cold blooded capitalist inside of you that breaks out into a sweat with the concept of of how much money you could have made if you had kind of sent stuff off to China? So, so I'm I'm lucky because I um I'm a, I'm a big runner, so I sleep really well at night. So I never wake up in the middle of the night. But that aside, it's like you know I was talking about it to my son this morning. You know. And he was saying, oh, Dan, if someone offered you guys, you know, X amount in cactus would be sales. Like, like, what do you do with that money? Like, I've got a really nice house that I built myself. I don't want another one. I don't want a batch. I've got a shitty car, but really I don't want a flash car. Like, I, I honestly don't know what I'd do with, with more money. So say cactus had been wildly successful. You know, say, say we'd done what, what Jeremy did with Icebreaker and gone overseas and grown it or whatever. Like, not only would I have this money that, I, I wouldn't know what to do, but also the people around me would kind of be looking at me sideways. Um, and also I, you know, instead of waking up in the middle of the night, maybe worrying about how much money I could have made, I would wake up in the middle of the night thinking that I'd sold my soul and um, no amount of money is worth that. Now, I don't want to, 
I don't want to start telling you how to do business, but I was going through the site and you're like, you're celebrating like a messenger bag uh, from 1993 that's been used for decades. So well, this is one of your, one of your early products, but don't you want to put in, you know, you can't sell another messenger bag if, if you, if you make them last forever, right? How does, how does that work? So, so um, I'm, the, I'm entirely the wrong person to come to for business advice because we make, products that last forever in a market of only a few million people. So disaster of a business model. But, um, you know, like as a, as, a, as a manufacturer, you know, as a, as a brand to, to, you know, that, that dude that sent us that photo, you know, there's nothing that we're more proud of than the fact that someone is using a, a bag 25 years later because our ethos from day one has, to, has been to make, you know, the most bomb-proof, bulletproof, Products and, and every every brand kind of talks about that, but when you've got someone that's using a bag that's twenty five years old. I mean, the other day, I, I was in the shop and this this crazy old guy came in, um, actually came in and took his pants off, which was a bit disconcerting. But anyway, um, and, and he held them up. It's like a pair of sixteen year old trousers. He said, "Oh, yeah, they're, they're pretty much broken in now. They're, they're a bit <laughs> you know, like how awesome is that?" In in you know, you're, you're absolutely right. It's not the right thing to do from a business perspective. I mean, in the US it would be because the market's big enough, but, but here it's not. But, you know, at the end of the day, if, if when I die, people say, well, he didn't really make much money, but he was involved in this thing that made some genuinely authentic, amazing products. Then what better eulogy is there? Mm, it is pretty cool. Like it's, um, you know, when you when you when you think about so many of the issues that we that we deal with in terms of you know microplastics in the ocean and uh, some of the environmental impact and and also the socioeconomic stuff. Like just just making products that last longer has got to have a huge impact on on a number of those things. Yeah, well, we we talk about you know that notion of miles per gallon so you know a pair of our trousers you know you might spend 250 bucks on a pair of trousers but if they last you 20 years then you know it's like 12 dollars a year so already the cost is you know negligible but the environmental impact because clearly there's impact from making fabrics and shipping them around and making them or whatever but if you get that much use out of the environmental impact is, is tiny over the years so um yeah, I mean, I think yeah, I, I really think there is there is something in there. Now you haven't, you're not really, you're not really, um, your humility is is great. But it, you know, is there a is there a point where you've got to be able to inspire other manufacturing in New Zealand, and you can't necessarily do that by espousing the the old car, simple house kind of thing? You know, is there a way to 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 be to have a bit of money, but to do what you're doing. Yes, yeah, so I think there's a parallel. There's, you know, like there's a parallel in, in a business world as there is for individuals. And so, I, you know, I would like to think that I'm I'm reasonably humble, but clearly I have a, you know, I, I have a, a personal brand, and, and I'm out there and I talk about it. Um, but uh, you know, and how do I reconcile that in my head? I reconcile it that you know, as long as what I'm saying is is kind of um, as being a proponent for, for for the good stuff, and as long as that isn't fueled, um, you know, entirely by ego, but there is some kind of, you know, social good or, or public good that comes from that, then, then then that's okay. And so, you know, like I will I will stand up and, and shout to the rooftops that what we do at Cactus is is amazing, and New Zealand Inc should be doing more of it. Um, and, and I think the interesting thing is that 
uh, you know, we aren't a, a massively profitable business. So, so clearly, Icebreaker is you know, financially, one could argue, but yeah, financially a, a better story. But I think the interesting thing for me is that, um, you know, when when someone buys a cactus product, okay, there's there's some financial gain for for us as the owners of cactus. But there's also a really positive gain for for New Zealand Inc. So mm. keeping local people and unemployed, we're reducing the environmental impact of, of consumption. So I think if you look at it holistically, you know, if, if if you talk about profit being the bottom line in dollars and cents, then it's difficult to advocate for our model. If you talk about profit being the sum total of your social, environmental, and financial impacts, then I actually think we are a wildly, wildly profitable business. Um, and that's the story that, that we want to tell, that actually this is actually a good thing for people, the planet, you know, and for us as, as owners of the business. And if you look at that in totality, then actually I would argue, you know, like I would never say we're, we're financially more successful than Kathmandu, MacPac or Icebreaker. But if you look at, across that spectrum, then hand on heart, we absolutely are. Mm. What would you like when you, you know, when you look at New Zealand and a lot of people are talking about the reset and the new New Zealand and moving forward and, and all of that sort of stuff. Do you think, would you like to see more local manufacturing within that? Would you like to see that we, you know, that we, we start to look at our own, our own production here? Absolutely. So, so as an example, you know, um, you know, Albion, which is the, the factory that, that keeps homes, that makes a bunch of uniforms for the army and the navy and the police and the fire service and stuff like that. And so my my view is that, you know, clearly it, it costs more to buy, uh, you know, a, a fire service shirt from here in New Zealand than it would if you made it in China or Bangladesh. But of that spend, a lot of, you know, there's some benefits to New Zealand, i.e. reduced unemployment, uh, better health outcomes because people are gainfully employed, better, better mental health statistics. And so I think what we want, what we need to do is, is, as a society, we need to say actually, we do need to be making stuff here because we're going to be keeping people gainfully employed, and it's actually worth spending more money to make stuff here because, you know, our tax dollars will go towards more important stuff because we won't have to be the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. And so, how can we change the system? And people talk about circular economy. And, all of this sort of stuff, donut economics or whatever. But it's just it's just being more resilient. And, and I absolutely think that, you know, the, the, the positive thing out of coronavirus could be that we create a more resilient model for New Zealand. And that doesn't mean going back to the way things were. You know, I remember in the 70s where there were import tariffs and mm. used to, like, bring, you know, cars got made in Japan, disassembled in Japan, brought into New Zealand and reassembled here because you could kind of get through the New Zealand made thing. I mean, that's stupid. That makes no mm. sense. So how can we apply a modern lens with technology and all of the smart stuff, you know, not going back to sort of Muldoonism, but being more resilient? I think that's an interesting thing to explore. Do you think it might need just a little bit of government assistance to make it work, whether you call it a tariff or, I don't know, subsidy? Absolutely. So, so you know, in the case of our business, you know, for example, um, even though the government... Um, has indicated that it will procure locally where, where possible. It's always really hard for us to get and, and keep those contracts. If the government said, right, all fire brigade, army, navy, you know, police uniforms will be procured, procured in New Zealand, 
that would overnight change the model for New Zealand manufacturing. Mm. And my contention is not only would it do that, but it would actually it would actually make the government money. For every you know thousand dollars of government spent on uniforms, it would spend more than it would lose. It would let, not need to spend more than that in return on health, welfare, these sorts of things. So I actually think that, um, and, and we're doing some work trying to get that sort of you know get some numbers to that, trying to get sort of an econometric kind of analysis of that. But it would actually be net beneficial for the government to invest in procuring locally. Oh, that's amazing. I never really thought about that. So from a, you know, so when it comes to supplying to the fire brigade or the police, you're you're competing with the rest of the world in terms of, in terms of that cost, the supply. We we totally are. And and so my contention is, so so say, say in round figure, say it costs $100 to buy a shirt in New Zealand and you could get that same shirt for $25 from, from Bangladesh. If you then factor in what the government saves in terms of better health, social welfare outcomes, you know, I believe that, that that $100 all of a sudden becomes less than the $25. So in fact, the government actually makes money by spending money locally. Mm. What is what are some of the hurdles from 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 a local manufacturing perspective? I understand that labour cost is is huge. What what else are, what else are you facing? Yeah, so I mean, labour cost is hard, but I think the biggest thing for for us is perception, and that is that um, for the last twenty years we've been told that manufacturing isn't sexy. You know, we all have to be graphic designers, web you know uh, software developers, uh, and baristas, basically. Um, and that, that is the future of our economy. And so, so you, you think about young people, and young people don't want to work in a factory making you know, clothing. They want to go and be managers or baristas or software designers. So there's that, there's that perception thing. The other thing in our industry is that um, over the last 20 or 30 years, it's really been decimated. So it used to be like we're here in Christchurch, and tens of thousands of people used to be involved in the industry here in Christchurch. And so you had a sort of a you had an infrastructure in place. So you had sewing machine mechanics. You had all the different you know, fabric agents. You had all of those support services. And it's really been hollowed out. So our, our vision, um, you know, like we don't want to build our business, um, you know, as an island. We want to build the industry, which means that our business will do okay, but a bunch of other businesses will also do well. And together, we will provide the whole that whole sort of system around manufacturing apparel. So if you, uh, if there were maybe some electricians or you know people around at the moment who are looking at uh, getting into a business, would there be any any green shoots of uh, manufacturing opportunity that you'd pinpoint? Like, you, do you, do you think that there are areas where that are just waiting to waiting to grow? Yeah, totally. And so so um, you know so for example, like you come into our factory and it it kind of looks like a factory thirty years ago did. So um, there's massive opportunity to apply, you know, automation, robotics, artificial intelligence to what we do. So basically taking the best stuff that technology has given us, all of that stuff, and applying it to traditional models. And so, you know, you know, other industries, agriculture is primarily done the way it was, you know, 50 years ago. What happens when you apply technology to agriculture? So take what we already do really well and apply some smart thinking to it that's a really amazing opportunity i reckon mm. it must be 
I'll go back to you know your your bio that you uh, that you ran through at the start. And I was thinking that it's, it's kind of interesting because I guess there's there's a conventional thought that you have to really focus on one thing to be successful at it. But what you're talking about is you have this breadth of experience, and so you kind of understand what's happening over on the, in terms of new technology, and then manufacturing. Is there is there is that part of the secret to be able to connect the dots for things? Yeah. So I mean, I think you know. So I'm I'm on the board of uh, you know a, a big health insurance company. I'm on the board of. Uh, and you know, manufacturing business. I'm on the board of a bunch of tech companies. Um, you know, I'm on the board of a, a not-for-profit. In, in theory, there's no commonality around them. But I would say there's two things. One is that in business, pretty much every problem comes back to the same thing, which is people. And so, if you uh, develop some skills around around people and culture and, and those sorts of things, that's applicable across the board. But the other thing that's really important to note is that. Um, the more different organizations you see, the better you become at pattern matching. Because basically, um, you know, governance running a business is just around seeing a situation, identifying patterns within a situation, and, and you know, resolving those issues or working upon those. And, and in my experience anyway, the more exposure you have to the, the bigger number of different organizations, the more data you have at your disposal, disposal, the more likely you are to be able to see those patterns and match them and, and identify some, some you know, ways to resolve those, those issues. How would you, you, well, you've won an award for your leadership, but how would you describe your leadership style? I mean, I think, um, again, I'm really mindful that I don't want to be seen as this kind of book leader, exemplar or whatever. Um, so, you know, like I would like to think um, what I aspire to be is a servant leader that is leads by example, um, you know, takes the blame but gives the credit. So, so I'm not saying that's what I am, but, but what I would aspire to do would be that when things are going really well, other people within the organisations I'm involved, um, you know, get, get the baubles and get, get the credit. But when things turn to custard, that I'm prepared to, to be there to stand up. Mm. It seems like that seems like common sense for a leader. Do you think it's actually that common? Um, you know, it's, it's really interesting, and, and I think you're right. Everyone says that, and what I and again, this isn't about that I do it well, you know, whatever. But what I have observed, um, you know, I've never worked in a really big business, but I've had a lot to do with um, you know CEOs from really really large organizations, you know, the likes of you know, Microsoft and Google and, and our largest organizations in New Zealand, you know, Air New Zealand and these sorts of things. And what I've, what I've noticed is that those people often talk about servant leadership, but come with a massive amount of ego. And as soon as they are criticized, threatened or whatever, um, the true behaviors come out, which is, uh, which, which don't kind of align with the whole, that whole servant leadership thing. So, um, yeah, I'm, you know, I, I, I've seen firsthand people who talk about the servant leadership and not having an ego and whatever, who have, you know, legions of, of personal assistants, um, you know, at their beck and call and, and making sure their profile is right and doing their PR stuff and, and getting the angles right on the shots or whatever. Um, to me, that doesn't really ring true. I mean, you know, 
everyone everyone is flawed. We're human beings. We are, we are flawed individuals. Um, and if at every turn you're trying to um, have your team make you look like you know the second coming, um, I think there's there's a bit of a, a disconnect there. Mm. Well, I, I guess we'll start talking about Silicon Valley um, and your thoughts on that. But but can we just compare New Zealand and say the US in terms of leadership styles and even personalities within business? What are some of the most kind of profound things that you notice? So I think uh, I mean part of it is is a function of size, and so our even our largest you know Fonterra, for example, is, is isn't massive on the global scale. And so if you think about uh, you know I spent a little bit of time. Um, when she was the CEO of, of Hewlett Packard with Meg Whitman. I mean, at that point, Hewlett Packard you know, employed half a million people. So, so it's, it's, it's absolutely monstrous. So, so part of the difference is, is a size thing. Um, so we tend to be a little bit more approachable. And so um, while, you know, I, I said before that, you know, even New Zealand CEOs have this healthy dose of ego, um, you know, and they do, they're still more approachable than their US counterparts. And so, you know, you name your large New Zealand organisation, um, you, you can generally have a conversation with the CEOs, you, you, you'll bump into them at, at the local cafe or whatever, you'll see them in the corridor lounge. So um, it's still more even than the US is. In terms of that Silicon Valley thing, I mean, it's kind of held up as the as the poster the poster child for, you know, for entrepreneurial and business and technology success. But you wrote an you wrote an article recently that you know it shouldn't necessarily be a place that we try and emulate. What's what's your take on that? Yeah, so I mean, I've, I've, I think I've been to you know the valley probably a hundred times in the past decade, and you know it's a place that I uh, I do know well. Um, it's a place that has horrible, horrible inequity. I mean, the, the number of homeless people you see on the streets of San Francisco um, being walked past by multi-billionaires, um, you know, and, and, and the other thing that's that's really interesting, you know, so that's the one thing, that inequity of wealth, which is horrible in, of, in and of itself. But I think what's worse is that Silicon Valley sort of holds itself up as the saviour of the world. So, so if you go to Texas and hang out with the oil barons, for example, um, you know, they're horrible people, they're, they're kind of evil, but they don't think they are the saviours of the world. So mm. Valley holds itself up as the saviour of, you know, of you know, everything bad in the world, you know, health outcomes, you know, bad governance, homelessness, uh, you know, issues around, you know, racism, sexism, Silicon Valley has the solution. And there's this bizarre arrogance that um, you can create an app to solve the world's problems. Um, there's also this really, really worrying um, tendency for Silicon Valley to consider that it has the answers more so than governments. So increasingly what we've seen is the, is, is the private sector kind of taking over the role of, of government mm. um, because suddenly the private sector can do better. And that's kind of worrying because, um, you know, I'm not saying government is perfect, it certainly isn't, it's very inefficient in cases, but Government, governments are voted upon by the people uh, and the people have a say in this. And frankly, albeit that government, you know, democratically government, elected governments do have, do have issues, issues and failings, I would rather they make the decisions than, you know, billionaires 
like Mark Zuckerberg. So, so I, I struggle with Silicon Valley because it really is the bastion of this arrogant, hubristic view that they are the, the, the savior of the world. It is the home of massive inequity. And it's really, it's a really, it's a real place of zero sum where, where for me to win, you have to lose. And what I, what I love about the New Zealand that, that I think we still have at some level is that it does have, it's quite egalitarian. It is quite altruistic. And, and I really want, you know, everyone to win. And you know, I want our competitors to win. I, I want there to be a level playing field. Like if someone makes their stuff in China, I want them to say they make it in China. But I don't think that that their success means our detriment. And, and I think that's different in Silicon, Silicon Valley where it really is all about me winning, you losing. Mm. And you, uh, you're not on Facebook, eh? You, you took yourself off there. Yeah, I'm not. I, I think, so for me... Um, you know, like I'm on a bunch of social media, like you know, Instagram and, and, and Twitter and stuff. But um, those, to me, are communication channels. The thing that um, uh, that I, I worry about with Facebook is that it is a it, it is a it is a medium, and like it is um, where people get their news. And and I don't really want to be part of a of a platform that that filters um, that news that people see. And so. Um, you know, the, the traditional media is kind of maligned and I know we see clickbait and listicles and all that sort of stuff, but at least it's transparent. Um, with Facebook, it isn't transparent. Transparent. So it wasn't that big a deal, you know, like I deleted my account and frankly, you know, it was a couple of years ago now and um, I don't really miss it. There's stuff that I miss out on, but I don't, don't know I'm missing out on it because I'm not there. So it's not that big of a deal really. Mm. You're very prolific on Twitter. Yeah, I, I mean, I quite enjoy, um, you know, like I, I'm pretty opinionated. Um, I quite enjoy um, articulating my opinion. Um, I do, uh, the, 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 the weird thing is that, that I, when I say something on Twitter, I just think of it as me spouting and I sort of forget the fact that there's a few people actually reading what I say and friends point out to me that, um, the A, that I come across as arrogant, and B, that sometimes I say things that actually have unintended consequences. So um, if I, you know, criticise someone or say something about a company or or, or whatever, that, that, that might, might have sort of ramifications or impacts. And, um, I never think about that because I just I just say stuff off the cuff. But but I, I, I enjoy Twitter. I've been on there for like 15 years or something, and it's kind of a, it's kind of a cool platform, I think. Is that part of a problem? I don't want to beat you up about saying stuff off the cuff, but is that part of, you know, people people can say stuff so easily without, they might have unintended consequences, but, you know, there is a ramification. Is that part of the, the kind of the noise at the moment? Yeah, totally. And, and you're absolutely right to, to beat me up. And so I think that the, the one thing I would say is that um, anyone who thinks that I, I and, you know, have an intention to piss people off, um, is wrong. Like it's because I'm stupid and I don't think. And and you know, like my foot to my mouth that I piss people off. And so that doesn't make me any less guilty. What it does is it, it moves me from being kind of um, evil and malicious to just stupid. Uh, and I'm like I'm happy to admit that I'm stupid. But it would really upset me if people thought there was was ever malice in in my mind because there isn't. 
Let's get you, just for a moment, I'll get your advice in terms of the media side of things because we're, you know, we're, we're trying to find our way in this, in this kind of ever-evolving ever evolving world. Have you got any thoughts for, for mainstream, where mainstream media fits, where even local media fits into the, into the scheme of things and, and if there's some sustainability in there for us? Yeah, so I think, um, so if I look at some models that seem to be working, you know, like, um, you know, NPR, they went, you know, full paywall, for example, and I'm, I, I, don't, I don't pay, so I don't, I don't read their stuff, but that seems to be working for them. So really specialist, really niche, and people, you know, the people that need that will pay for it. Um, it was super exciting to see, you know, the stuff acquisition, um, you know, a, a month or two ago, um, yeah, I, I I really hope that Sinead, um, you know, that it works for her. I think that um, with that, she's able to focus on, um, you know, good media. She's moved away from from Facebook, so that's interesting. Um, you know, I write for for the for the Herald, but without any you know sort of um, bias on my part. I think the whole premium content thing, because you know, frankly, if people want to read clickbait, they'll go to Facebook. Um, and I think that what has happened in in, the, in recent years is traditional media has tried to beat Facebook as its own as its own game. There's no point doing that. So I think you know if you think about M2, like you've got a particular clientele, like you've got a particular readership. There's no point you trying to beat anything but that. You know you need to work out, and I'm not telling you anything you obviously don't know, but you know you need to work out models that work. I.e. A split between you know print and and uh, and online, um, you know new business models, and I think you know the guys at Tangible Media who do, did Idealogue, I think did really well for a period of time, um, you know doing that, finding some alternative business models, but you know they haven't been successful on an ongoing basis. I think it shows that these models need to change pretty regularly, and I think. Um, the one thing that Silicon Valley does well is that sort of agile, um, iterative mindset, and I think that's something that we need to bring into all of our businesses. I think. You think that there's a is there a lesson in there as well that that can be taken from that media world into other sectors? But you know, for a while there, we're all competing with each other. There's this really intense kind of local competition, and you've even got the Comcom in there, making sure that there's not you know we don't get any sort of local monopolies but meanwhile you've got silicon valley facebook google coming in and taking away um increasing amounts of market share every year in terms of advertising and and you know we weren't even necessarily focused on them is there the danger that 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 happens in other areas as well yeah so i think it's about using those platforms to to augment what you do and so you know i don't know anything about your business so i'm not early enough to proffer advice or whatever but i think uh, you know Facebook and Instagram and social media generally is a great way to broaden your message. And so you've got the you've got the masthead. How can you engage with your your posse using social media to expand upon upon what you do? So so don't you know it shouldn't be a competitor. You know what are the benefits that you can take from it to expand what you do? But I think the difficulty with those platforms as they rapidly devour everything on them. So, um, you know, like it's, um, if, if, if one does, does a deal with the devil, then, um, you know, one invites 
what's coming down the line. So um, it's 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 tricky, and it's yeah, I, I don't know what the answers are. Now, if we if we go back to you, thank you for your your advice, by the way. If we go back to you, and you've got enough spinning plates, I'm sure to keep you busy. But but have you given thought to what what the next couple of years look look like for you? And and has COVID kind of spun spun things off in another direction? Yeah, so I mean, until until last year, I, I sort of averaged three hundred fifty thousand miles on the plane a year. So you know, ridiculous amounts of travel. So um, that's that's stopped. I, I think that will start again, but not to the same extent. And so, if you think, you know, if, if I had to sort of crystal ball gaze at what um, what the next few years would look like, I mean, I think um, you know, with the purchase of, of Albion, cactus is now you know it is a real thing. So that's going to grow and. Um, you know, be, be more independent, take less of my time. I, um, you know, governance is, is my future. So I, um, you know, like uh, I, I'm not I'm not big at making plans or whatever. But I like I, I would, um, you know, I, I have an ambition to be on you know um, an NZX listed board or boards um, in that sort of time frame. So um, you know, I think my life in a couple of years kind of looks a little bit similar to what I do now. I, you know, it's a, a bunch of board work. Um, you know, tripping around the place a bit. Um, you know, I, I, I make furniture for a hobby, so spending time in my workshop making stuff. Um, uh, my, my number one thing is I need to accept the fact that um, uh, in that in that period, my son, who's also an ultramarathon runner, um, is going to finally be faster than me, um, which is going to be probably the most depressing, well, proud and depressing uh, equally. Um, point in my life, um, but hopefully I'm still running, still, still doing the ultras, and uh, and for a change, I won't wait for him at the finish. He'll wait for me, so that'll be cool. Is there a particular, is there a particular mindset that it takes? Is it is it kind of like a? Do you have to be slightly mad to be an ultra marathon runner? Um, so yeah, so I mean, like running for you know, 29, 30 hours is, is stupid, like, at, at any level. Um, I think what's interesting for me is, um, so a couple of things. I, I love um, being disconnected. So I, I never run with an iPod or, or whatever. So um, I love just being out there in, in nature, or not even nature, just on, on the road. So I, I love that sort of zen kind of state. Um, but I think what's, what's really interesting is, um, you know, like, it's, it's a real cliche to say life is like a, you know, box of chocolates or an ultra marathon or whatever, but it, but it kind of is like, you know, I think about these hundred mile races that I do and, you know, in within those hundred mile races, you have the, the absolute, you know, high point of, of, of your life. It's like absolute jubilation and, and utter despair and, and back again many, many times. Um, and it's sort of, you know, like I've only ever um, pulled out of, of one race, you know, DNF one race. Um, and I sort of reflect on that because, like, it's so easy to sit down and it feels so good. And then it feels so shit. And the good feeling only lasts five minutes because eventually you would have finished and sat down anyway. But the shit feeling having pulled out of a race lasts forever. And, and life's, life generally is like that. If you think about business, it's hard. It's hard work. It's, it's, it's heartbreak a lot of the time, but it's, it's worth it. I mean, if you think about parenting, I mean, you know, kids are horrible creatures, but every while, every once in a while, you get this incredible 
payback, which is a thousand times more than all of the heartbreak you've had. So, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's parallels from, I, mm. I think, in ultramarathons, a bunch of other things in life. Yeah, but just that, you know, just that mental fortitude, it seems... It seems inconceivable for me, and I understand that there are parallels. But you know, just that, just that mental thing of of working through the pain is that is that something that you always had, or did you have to did you have to grasp grasp at that? Um, I don't know. Like I I, I wouldn't sort of um, anal, analyze myself, but I mean, I think you know, like I've done ultras now for about five or five or six years and um i quite like the fact so like you know i'm quite simple and um ultras are like so simple because it's like right here's what you have to do put one foot in front of the other and keep going and um and that's awesome because in life there's all this complexity and all of this kind of stress and all of these factors and all of this different stuff and an ultra it's like yeah, you have to get your food right and you have to train and the weather and the equipment. But put all of that aside, all you actually have to do is put one foot in front of the other. So what's really nice for someone who has, you know, a reasonable amount of stuff going on in their life is to go to an event and it's like, right, from when the gun goes, you just keep putting one foot in front of the other and eventually you'll get to the end. It's like, sweet, I'll switch my brain off and I'll just keep walking or running or whatever. Mm. And from running to the world of investment and, and you know, there's a lot of, I, I think there's a lot of um, overseas VCs who are looking at New Zealand and, uh, and eyeing up the potential here. What do you, what do you make of um, the, the appetite, I guess, for investors into, into New Zealand startups? Is it going to be easier? Yeah, so, I mean, so for one, interest rates are really low, so people are, are investing in growth assets. So, so, you know, on a global scale, there's going to be lots of investment. But I think um, New Zealand now has a track record in the investment space. I mean, if you if you you know if you go back fifteen years, you know when Zero was just starting out, it was it was totally unknown. We now have a track record, and we've had some some real success. So we've got a bunch of Aussie VC firms here now um, that are that are actively investing. Uh, you know, like I, there's a lot of people who say, "Wow, at last," because there was no investment before, and now there is. I don't I don't agree with that because. Good businesses got funded um, and continue to get funded, um, but you know when there's more money here, there's more awareness, and so it gets that a little bit easier. So I, I'm I'm really excited. Like I think it's an, an awesome time for New Zealand tech. There's heaps of companies. Like I, for the past five or six years, I've judged the NZ High Tech Awards, and just the the caliber of the entrance is just so much higher than it was back then, and it's just amazing. Like I, I, I when I used to judge in the, in the early days. You know, I would know every company on the entrance list. And, and that's not that I'm super well connected, it's just that there's only so many companies. You know, the, when I judged this year, it's like, I don't know any of the companies. It was awesome. Like, all of the stuff that's going on, it's like, you know, what Rod Drury envisaged 15 years ago, you know, around the New Zealand tech ecosystem has really come to pass. And it's just awesome. And what about from a from an angel investor perspective? Is there, you know, is there the appetite there as well? Do we need to do we need to do anything else there? Yeah, I, I think the only thing I'd say is that um, it's it's really easy to call oneself an angel investor, and it's kind mm. of like we talked before about sort of the social enterprise thing. And, you know, I'm a social entrepreneur because I do yoga. Yoga. Um, 
there's, there's lots and lots of angel investors, of which probably 5% actually angel invest. Um, so I'm all for angels, and I think it's great that we've got an angel system here, but how about we just have angels being angel investors? And the, the other people that want to hang out and do stuff and drink wine or whatever, that's totally fine, but don't do it. Don't be angel Don't call yourselves angel investors if you're not. Um, so, you know, there's the, there's the investors who aren't angelic and they're a whole other subject, but in terms of the people that don't even invest, just mm. don't be doing it. It's totally fine that you don't invest, but don't, don't pretend that you do. What have you got to get some wine and cheese at demo days, by the way? I, so I'm, I'm a big fan. I mean, I live in Waikaras. Like, we, we're at the heart of wine country. I've got, you know, my friends own Kaikoura of cheese. So wine and cheese I'm totally into. But I pay for my wine and cheese, um, and I don't want to go to an event and have people. Um, so I'm all about level playing fields, right? So, so if you think about angel investors, angel investors put in money, and maybe they put in a bit of experience and connections, which is great and is valuable. Entrepreneurs put everything. They put their heart and soul. They put 80 hours a week. They put their security. You know, they do all of that. So in my, in my mind, the entrepreneurs are here, you know, angel investors are here. So angel investors have some value, but, but it's less than entrepreneurs. Unfortunately, all of these wine and cheese pitch nights put the entrepreneurs, uh, sorry, the investors up here because mm. they've got money and they're the money bags and the entrepreneurs are kind of And um, And so, so, so let's say, for example, someone was putting on a pitch night and said, hey, pay 50 bucks and we're going to give you great wine and cheese when you come along and you can do some investing then I'm all for that because I love wine and cheese. I'll pay my money, I'll eat some wine and cheese, and I'll listen to some pictures, no problem at all. But I shouldn't, as, as an angel investor, I shouldn't feel like I'm owed wine and cheese to mm. hear Does it, it still kind of feels like the power is with the, with the investors. Is that starting to shift, do you think? Um, no, and I think COVID has made it worse because before, um, you know, there was, there was a lot of investing happening and now... A lot of those investors who are maybe on the on the fringes and don't aren't really into it and are a bit nervous anyway, COVID will make them even more nervous. So I think that early stage money will be a bit harder to get. So the power imbalance will be even worse. I, I, I fear. There's some uh, doom and gloom foreshadowing uh, in terms of what happens to the, our economy once the helicopter money runs out. We've got the wage subsidies uh, running out, and, and you know we're we're being warned to brace. Are you? Are you conscious of that? Are you still optimistic of the future? I'm 100% conscious of it. And so I think, um, you, know, you know, I walk around Christchurch and go to cafes and restaurants or whatever, and it's absolutely packed. Like people are spending money more, more than they were 12 months ago. And I fear that what's going to happen is we're going to fall off a cliff. Once wage subsidy ends, uh, all of a sudden, you know, there is going to be carnage. Um, and so... You know, we're really conscious of it. Like, you know, Cactus, we've been we've been pretty busy, but we've been very careful. We're not spending money. We're not um, thinking this will continue. We're, we're, we're planning scenarios based on that cliff coming. Um, I, I hope it doesn't, but I suspect it will. Have you? I mean, you jumped into masks. Are you still are you still focusing on that, or have you gone back to kind of some of the other manufacturing? So we're still doing both. I mean, we're um, since you know actually Bluefield this thing last week masks have gone crazy and we've sold thousands of things but um you know our factory is, is reasonably big so we can make quite a few masks while still making all the other stuff as well so we're we're balancing stuff 
is there a, um, yeah, I guess is that there is that pain coming. Um, but how do you think we, I mean, we're looking pretty good globally, right? We're, we're kind of, we're able to go to rugby games and that kind of thing. And, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of attention on us. Do you think that we come out, we come out looking pretty good in a couple of years? Yeah, so, so that, I mean, I think we do look quite good now and we will in a couple of years. But the other thing I think, and it goes back to my resilience thing, is that we can feed ourselves, we can clothe ourselves, we can own ourselves. And so, you know, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, okay? Yep, going to my favourite coffee and, and having, you know, having my, you know, cold core is super important. But actually, it's probably less important than being able to eat. Um you know, all of the luxuries that we once thought were important, you know, if we if this thing does go really bad, won't feel important anymore. And what is actually important, i.e. food, shelter, clothing, we can actually do. And so I think um, New Zealand is in a really good position. Now, I sort of think that, you know, when we started sort of going down this whole globalisation thing and getting rid of all our manufacturing and becoming less resilient, I think COVID came at a really opportune time because we still have we still have those sort of green shoots there and it doesn't take much to reinvigorate them. If we'd gone another 10 years, we would have lost all that stuff. It would have been harder to rebuild, I think. Is there some sort of balance though? I mean, cause globalization is kind of nice in theory, right? Is there, do you, do you think that will have sort of a blend? Oh, totally. I mean, at the end of the day, we're not going to be making, you know, electric cars in New Zealand. Um, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think we're going to be doing, you know, making silicon chips. So there absolutely is a blend. Like, you know, Muldoon was all about close the borders, close the gate, and be real protectionist and isolationist. We, we can't go there. So, so I think you're, you're absolutely right. There will be this hybrid model. And I'm really keen to explore what that looks like in the context of what we do really well and have done historically really well. Brilliant. All right, one last question. Uh, I'm not sure who my next interview is, but is there a question you'd like me to include? Yeah, so um, this question, uh, my, my number one question. Um, oh, man, so many questions I could ask. I could ask just a specific question, but that's... Um, now, I think um, if coronavirus comes back and if the economy is decimated, what are five things that are most important to you? What are the five things that you can't do without? And what are the things that can go by the wayside? That's cool. That's cool. Can I get you to answer that? Yeah, so for me, um, health. Uh, so uh, having a roof over my head, over my head uh, being able to feed myself, um, being able to um, interact with my nearest and dearest, which does require some level of technology. Um, but also, you know, there's some, some higher level things in there as well. I, I think that a world without music, a world without art, uh, a world without love would be a sad place. So um, I think all of those things are important. What, what can go by, by the wayside? Um, you know, the latest cell phone, uh, you know, the latest late model vehicle, um, you know, I know it's a travesty to say, but coffee can probably go by the wayside. So I can forego some luxuries, but to me, you know, art and music aren't luxuries because they're what differentiates us from the animals.